This is Jamie Valvano, daughter of legendary basketball coach Jim Valvano, and I'm here with my son Grant Howard, and you're listening to the Shadows Podcast. Five, four, three, two, one, so bam, do what you can. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Shadows Podcast. Before we get started, I'd like to make a quick plug for our new official website, www.theshadowspodcast.com. While you're there, leave us a review. Also, click on the follow button on the top right-hand side of your screen and make sure that you're up to date on all the latest episodes on your preferred podcast platform. Now, before we get started with this episode, I'd like to go back and play a clip from the archives. This is episode 19. She's the creator and founder of Click and Carry. She's a Shark Tank contestant and a breast cancer survivor. The Chronicles of Kimberly Mechwood. But that had to be surreal for you because you went on, you got awarded the QVC uh, Sprouts Gadget of the Year 2014. And you said QVC ordered 60,000. All that happens to you. What is going through your mind? Oh, it was, it, it was crazy. And, and the funny, well, it's not funny, but um, at the same time, simultaneously, that's when all the, the cancer baloney happened. So, um, so I was dealing with that on top of it. And um, so what I, what I um, decided to do, and it was a stupid move, but it was the only move that I, that I had. I actually used my 401k to pay for that order because sometimes you have to take a chance in life and you have to strike while the iron is hot. So I utilized my 401k and I knew that there was going to be a tax penalty, but I didn't think it was going to be as, as high as it was. And it, it came about a year and a half later. Um, but I, I did that. I, I sold the 60,000 units and um, went through the cancer issue. And luckily it was resolved quite quickly. I caught it early. But when you go through something like that, you realize how precious life is and, and how it's important to follow your passion. So I decided, um, I decided in March after my second surgery that I was going to save up all my money and leave at the end of the year because I had to wait um, six months to have reconstructive surgery. Um, so I had three surgeries that year. So that was in October that I had the surgery and I left my job, the job that I loved, the one that I told you about with the, um, the leads for mm-hmm. Medtronic for the deep brain stimulation. I left my job at the end of the year to do click and carry full time. So. All right. If you liked what you heard right there and you want to hear that episode in its entirety, check out all past episodes in the archives over at www.theshadowspodcast.com. Now, enjoy this episode, The Chronicles of Zach Bitter. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of The Shadows Podcast. I'm your host, Trip Odenheimer. And I'm excited today to be joined by Zach Bitter. Just to look, tell you a little bit about him before we get started. He's an endurance athlete and coach. He's competed professionally in ultramarathons since 2010. He's broken both world and American records as well as won three national championships. He's competed for Team USA's world 100-kilometer team on three separate occasions. Sir, welcome to the show. Hey, Trip. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. How's the uh, weather in Phoenix right now? 
Yeah, it's, it's funny you ask. It's one of the rare rainy, cloudy days that we get. I think they advertise Phoenix as like 300 plus days of sunshine and um, yeah. we managed to find the like, I guess, 60 or less days that is one of them today. So, which is, which is really funny. Like I grew up in the Midwest, so I'm, I'm not unfamiliar to gloomy cloudy days, especially this time of year, but uh, you do when you've lived in Arizona for a couple of years with my wife and I have just, we're a little over three years now in, in Arizona and you actually kind of look forward to the, the, the cloudy days. Cause it's like, yeah. after a while, it's just like, yeah, yeah, I think I've got enough sunshine for, for a while. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it was, uh, I was talking to you before we hit record, we were at Davis Mothin and uh, the one thing I did like about Arizona is you wear the same clothes like year round, you don't need turtlenecks and, and sweaters, but yeah, you look forward to those rainy days. Is it, is it kind of like monsoon season rain or? Yeah, kind of like that. You, you know, from my experience, usually that comes through in the February timeframe yeah. more likely. So for whatever reason this year, it was a little lacking in February, but now here we are mid-March and we got we got a good storm that came through. So we'll take the rain. Yeah. It's postponed due to COVID. So yeah. we got to push back <laughs> a little bit. All right. So we're going to start with a couple of rapid fire questions here for you. You have no idea the three questions we're going to throw at you, but they're not that tough. First one, well, two part question. Do you listen to music when you run? Yes. All right. What's your go-to? Um, my go-to is probably either Black Label Society or ACDC. I saw somebody on Instagram lift, lift into Black Label Society yesterday. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What, uh, what's your guilty pleasure? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, let's see. Guilty pleasure. Probably I would say, um, you know what? Sleeping in is something I consider a, a, a guilty pleasure. It's more, I'm usually an early bird though, but yeah. for whatever reason, this last like couple of months, I think maybe just the, the way the, the, the sunsets and rises have been occurring this time of year, I've been sleeping in a little more, which I, I might, I guess the guilty part of that is I've controlled my schedule well enough where I can just usually push things back and work a little later in the day if I need to. So I don't have to wake up early in the morning anymore. I, when I was a full-time teacher, I did, but, uh, yeah, so I can sleep in a little bit this time of year anyway. When it gets hot, I have to wake up early. So, <laughs> what what do you consider sleeping in? Uh, anything past seven a.m. Okay, I slept until six this morning. And I felt awful. I felt <laughs> so bad this morning. I like six. Six is a good time usually for me. I feel like uh, I don't have to get to bed like like crazy early then. Yeah. And, but it's early enough where like you can get a workout in and start, start like whatever you had to try to accomplish that day. You don't feel like it's, you know, noon before you really got anything done. I know this is rapid fires, but we're talking about sleep. <laughs> we're deep diving what, into this stuff. What, how many hours of sleep do you tend to get? I usually feel really good when I'm between like eight or nine, when I'm kind of in full training, if it's just like off season type stuff, like eight or even a pinch under usually is good enough. Okay. I've been trying to increase my sleep a little bit more as of late all right next question for you you could be one television or movie character who would that be television or movie character um let's see gosh this one i should know this should be an easy one <laughs> i feel like this is one of those questions that says a lot about you so you can't answer it wrong yeah it's kind of like a person <laughs> we're, we're gonna find a lot about you before we dive into these questions um Let's, I would go with uh, Joe Rogan, just because I think 
his lifestyle is really cool in the sense that he kind of built everything he wanted to do around or he built his job around what he wanted to do so it just seems like adult playground for him even okay. though i'm sure it's hard work and very time consuming <laughs> and you you were on his uh his podcast too yeah so i have good perspective i yeah. guess <laughs> I, and i asked that question to you because i got asked that to me not too long ago and i had no idea how to to answer it it was a lot tougher than i really thought <laughs> all right now you've uh you survived the rapid fire questions so tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Yeah, I, you know, I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, I was born, actually born in Minnesota. My family quickly moved to Nebraska before I was old enough to remember. And uh, that's where I kind of spent my early years in school before uh, my dad, who was, uh, he was a, an elementary school principal. And he took, uh, you know, he's early in his career at that time. So he was like, kind of still like, moving around a bit, finding the right spot and all that stuff. And we ended up in, in Wisconsin by the time I was eight. And that's where I basically grew up. I went to high school and college in Wisconsin, spent five years teaching, um, teaching a, a combination of kind of regular and special education there for five years before, uh, you know, turning towards endurance, set sport and coaching and things like that as a career move. But, you know, it was, a, I would say it was, you know, pretty uh typical upbringing for a midwest kid you know we lived in a relatively small area i went to relatively small schools and things like that so uh it was it was uh fun in the sense that my parents were just really kind of open-minded about just what i was doing from an extracurricular standpoint Mm -hmm. so you know obviously they wanted me to stay on top of my education and things like that but it, outside of that, it was like, Hey, if you want to play football, play football. If you want to play soccer, play soccer. If you want to run, run. So there was a lot of like encouragement, but not forceful encouragement of saying like, you have to do this. Uh, it's just like, as long as you're doing something great. So like I had a lot of opportunities, I think, to, to explore what I wanted to do and what I was interested in from, you know, getting a paper out at an early age to, um, you know, participating in, in most sports that were available to me at one point in time. So I think I got a really good visual of what I was both good at, what I was bad at, and what I wanted to kind of focus my time and energy at, at a pretty early age. Um, the other thing with it, though, that kind of came with that, that I always look back on now that, you know, I've had some accomplishments within the endurance world is just my relative, like ignorance to, <laughs> to what it actually takes to be like an endurance athlete, or what an endurance athlete actually was when I was younger, like, basically up until around my senior year in high school, when I really started to kind of think about that sort of stuff. And then in college where I was really introduced to like some of the methodologies and training techniques and like what you actually have to do outside of just showing up and racing as hard as you could essentially. So I actually kind of like that. Um, it probably cost me some positions at state meets in high school and maybe a few spots on, on the cross country and track team in college. But ultimately I think it, slowed the rate of excitement to the point where you know one thing I see in the endurance running community sometimes it is very easy to kind of get it overly ambitious and bite off more than you can chew and then you can have some really good seasons but then you're doing it unsustainably so then you kind of hit that wall and you don't know what to do because now you have kind of a background of success for a couple of years doing something that's not sustainable and then you know, sometimes us endurance athletes are a little more stubborn, a little more type A with that sort of stuff. So you're saying, oh, it worked before, it's going to work again. You just try to 
you try to hammer it home versus stepping back and looking at where you're actually going to improve and grow. So for me, kind of having that gradual introduction into it over the course of uh, essentially seven or eight years, I think was very helpful in me not kind of getting overly ambitious when I wasn't ready to. So um, I always look back at that as uh, kind of a good ignorance, if you could call yeah. it that. Yeah. And I think we all kind of go through that in a way. I I remember when I started weightlifting, I'd go in the gym and do the same four exercises every day for two months and wasn't getting the the gains I wanted at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started doing research and, and changing my lifestyle a little bit. But you talked about going to university. Was it Wisconsin at uh, Stevens Point? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So during your time there, uh, track and field cross country team, and you talked about how you kind of, you know, mentally uh, grew a lot during that that point from high school to college. Who were some of the people that were instrumental in that growth? Yeah, so my coach there, uh, Rick Witt, he was, uh, you know, a longtime coach, very well established amongst, uh, you know, the division three schools. And uh, he had a, a lot of success at that at, at Stevens Point. So uh, I was um, very willing to listen and learn from him. So when it came to just understanding the sport in, I guess, what you'd just even say a more scientific way versus my high school experience was a little bit more, I had a great high school coach, but at that point in time, I think my level of absorption was tell me what to do workout wise and I'll do it but I didn't really think about why we were doing, I wasn't asking him questions about like, well, mm-hmm. why are we doing this? What is this doing? And really kind of learning what the process was where that started to shift in college as I started to take it a little more seriously and think of it as something that I wanted to do for the rest of my life um, as at least a hobby. So uh, kind of leaning on his expertise for that was very uh, kind of growth-based for me understanding like, well, why do we do short intervals now and you know, longer intervals or tempo runs then, or what's the purpose of doing a longer run on the weekend and, and all these things and kind of understanding kind of that's just the specificity of training for different endurance races. And, and then just identifying like, what is my favorite part? Like the, why, like, why am I doing this? What, yeah. what, where's the enjoyment and where is the, you know, the type two fun, I guess, too. Cause I think there's like, there are things we do, I think as humans that are struggles, but the struggle bears a big reward at the end, just from the way you feel, the way you uh, look at the accomplishment and see what it took to get there and the confidence that gives you as well as just the direction of how you can use that in other areas of your life. Uh, Starting to tease that stuff out too. So like, for one thing, like I recognized in college, like if, if I had to pick a workout, I really loved, it was the long run. And then if I had to pick a workout that was really tough for me or more challenged for me, it's like short intervals. So, uh, you know, for me, it was like the short intervals were the ones that like really taught me how to kind of struggle and appreciate the hard work and the long mm-hmm. runs taught me, or taught me about why I'm doing this. Like, this is something I really enjoy. I can, I, I, I pull, pull the enjoyment from the act of doing it as well as the, the aftermath, I guess you could say. What is your why? Uh, you know, I think it's like, if I had to pick one reason, it's definitely just like, actually I'll pick two reasons. I can't pick one, but <laughs> there, there's one of them is just like, I really love the sport of running for what it can provide in the sense of like, I want to see improvement. I want to see what I can do to, to, to generate that. So if I go and I run a race and I yield X time, uh, it's, 
you, you, you are leaning on other people for sure. But like in terms of the act of doing in the moment, there's a lot of just like, okay, I'm not asking someone else to do this for me or to do half the work and I'm going to do the other half and together we're going to succeed. It's like this very like kind of individual, uh, test, I guess. And, you know, you get that, you draw that line of where you're at and then you get a chance to kind of go back to the start and say, okay, what do I think went well? And what do I think didn't, where can I improve on my weaknesses, but lean into my strengths and then kind of do it again and see if you can make some improvements. And just that, that kind of rinse and repeat process has always been motivating and exciting to me and probably why I've done it for as long as I can. I think if I get to a point where like that isn't a big driver for me, it'll be a lot more of a, of a challenge to like enjoy the sport in a way, at least in the same way as I do now. Um, the, uh, the other part about it that I really, that I really enjoy is just kind of that building side of things. I, I, I've seen this in other areas of my life too, where it's, uh, I get excited and motivated if I have like a goal, a long-term goal, and then I can kind of step back and say, okay, now what do I have to do to kind of get that first block or first brick laid? And then how do I add to that and kind of continue to build that and eventually get to that spot where I, that I, that I thought of. So that, that just the process of building and improving through it is something that really motivates me as well. Yeah. Simon Sinek, several of his different books, he's talked about, you know, you got to find that why. Mm-hmm. To, to really understand your purpose. So I like to, to ask that question. Um, what was it that got you into running that sparked your interest in running to kind of back up a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. I, you know, like I said, in the beginning, I had experience with a lot of different sports in my youth. So I got a good glimpse at like, well, this is one where, you know, my classmates are just way better than me naturally. And here's one where for whatever reason, you know, I can, finish in the top or finish up near the front, uh, without, you know, the, the adaptation of training. Cause at that age, you know, I think I was in sixth grade and like no one was training specifically for anything. We were just going out for recess more or less. And uh, I had a phi ed teacher who did the presidential physical fitness challenges for, oh, yeah. you know, one of the, one of the areas of the phi ed curriculum. And, and that's actually a real, I'm not sure if they still do those, but it's, uh, wasn't that with Arnold Arnold was part of that. Was he? Okay. Oh yeah. I think yeah, so. That, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, that was, I think the first time I really realized that, oh, you, it's not just like about being athletic or not athletic. There's like different, there's different like aspects to fitness and there's different strengths and weaknesses within that. So like what makes a great sprinter probably comes at the expense of being a great distance runner and vice versa. So obviously you can train those things, which I learned later on in my running career. Uh, But at that time, what I recognized was, oh, there's some things that I'm just naturally a little better at. And then there's some things that I would really have to work hard for to even be mediocre. And, you know, the distance running, we did the mile part of that presidential physical fitness. And when I compared that to like the V-sit reach, the pull up, the shuttle run and all the other things that we did for that, it was just that one stood out as like, well, this is the one I'm the best at. And it was also kind of a weird experience too, because I had a super tiny class at that time. I think I had seven classmates and uh, we, we, we all finished it. And I just remember distinctly afterwards, my other classmates were just basically like, yeah, I never want to do that again. And I was just like, I kind of want to do that again. <laughs> so that kind of stuck out of my mind as like, maybe this is something I should like keep an eye on if I like, well, I guess it just drew a question. Like, why did I enjoy that? And the majority of my classmates didn't like what's different about me or about them or about this and something else. And, and that was maybe the first time I was really sparked with any interest in it. And, 
fortunately for me, my, my dad picked up on that. So he would like kind of like subtly like give me opportunities to, to test that stuff by, you know, taking me to the track after school to just to run an all out mile and see what I could do, see if I could make an improvements so at that point in my, in my running, it basically was that every, every time I went out for a run, it was going to be as hard as I could do it and it'd be for a mile. Cause that's where my perspective was. But then we'd go on like a vacation or something like that. And there would be just some local like youth cross country meet or something like that. And he'd ask if I want to do it, I'm like, sure, let's do it. And then, you know, you can see a different angle of the sport. That's a little bit of different, on a different distance, different terrain and things like that. And, and, you know, so that's kind of like, I think what, what kind of drew me in, in the beginning. Yeah. That's, that's cool that your dad did that too. I don't know why I was picturing like in school, like you over there drinking a Capri sun and they're like, all right, another mile or another half mile for the rest of y'all. Like you're already done. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, it is funny too. Cause at that age, it's like the distance events in track and field day are like the 800 and the mile. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's like, that feels like a sprint to me these days. Yeah. I remember those too. And I, it's, I could run them all day long and now it's, you know, I get gassed really quick. Um, <laughs> but so one thing, you know, we talk about it a lot in the military, it's the different domains of wellness. There's, you know, physical, mental, spiritual, social domains. And I kind of want to tap into a couple of those with you. So with your training and conditioning, physically and mentally, what goes into that for you? Yeah, uh, you know, I think especially when you get into like the ultra marathon stuff, it's just, I wouldn't say it's more mentally challenging than other sports. I think it's just different where you're being asked, it's like this kind of almost this patient mental or this, this attrition type of a mental game where you're never really running fast relative to what you could do on any given day. Uh, so the, the mental hurdle to get over is to stay focused and stay motivated and continue to believe that you can keep pushing even when you, your body is feeling fatigued, tired, sore, hungry, thirsty, and everything in between. Uh, it's just, and it's kind of like a little bit of a different experience and it's, it's hard to replicate in training. And that's where it really deviates from a lot of endurance events where I think even up to the marathon, a lot of times, certainly the professionals, they're going to get up very close, if not to the distance they're going to race in training. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're preparing for a hundred mile race, you could go up for a 30 or 40 mile long run and you're not even halfway to where you would be in the race. Uh, so you're left with this kind of unique experience where you, when you look back on, uh, a point to reference for a race, you're looking back to the last time you raced it, which might be six months or a year, or even further from the last time you did it. So that's like a really far point of reference versus saying, okay, I'm going to try to peak for a 5k. You know, I might do four or five 5ks as a buildup to the one I really want to nail. So I've got these like really close mental pictures of what I've done historically or what I've done uh, most recently that I can kind of draw from where it's just a little bit different when you're stretching distances out as long as ultra marathon type stuff. So that one, I think really highlights the mental picture of it. And, and there's also the training side too, where it's like, yeah. you know, you have to build in, I think benchmarks to target in the short term, because if I pick a race that's six months down the road that I'm going to peak for, it's very exciting when I first put that on the calendar. It's really motivating when I plan out what I want to do. But then, you know, you get three, four weeks into it and that newness is kind of worn off and you have to ask yourself why you're doing it or like, you know, what's the point of getting up and going out for, you know, a 15 mile run with uh, some short or some long intervals in the middle or something like that. 
you almost need something else to target that's a little more immediate gratification than that end yeah. goal. So that actually adds to it as well, which would be a little more similar to all endurance sports, I would say. And then the physical aspect is just like, I think looking at it, I think I always like to think like, well, where are the big movers here? And let's make sure those are done very well and very consistently. And then once that is really dialed in, then we can start thinking about like, what are some small things that could generate a small improvement uh, that are worth focusing on once you've kind of got the intuition of the big movers. And the, the big movers I always like to think of is uh, consistency in the training that is based on what you're ready for. So you have to look at where your historic development is there. You know, myself 10 years ago would have a different training plan to elicit a stress response that's going to, if I recover from it, potentially move me forward versus, you know, 10 years later now, it's a different set of, uh, you know, variables that I need to hit in order to generate that stress response since I have that foundation in place. And, you know, now that I'm 35, I'm, I'm not old, but I'm not young either. So it's like, there's you're also, still, you're still young. You're still yeah. young. <laughs> I've got, I've got another big hit coming at some point. Right. <laughs> so, but you know, you learn things about yourself. Like I can't do things the same way as I would when I was like 22, 23. Mm -hmm. uh, it, and some of that's really good because some of those things were probably not sustainable anyway. Uh, and mm -hmm. some of it is, you know, just the learning process and, and leaning on what you've learned and the huge foundation that I've been able to develop over the years as well. So, you know, that might mean doing workouts a little differently than I had in the past, or at least ordering them a little differently. So the physical side of it is focusing on kind of that consistency and training from where you're at. The other one, the other two is like paying attention to my nutrition, making sure I'm giving my body what it needs to actually fuel the workouts as well as recover from them. And then another huge piece of the puzzle is that sleep rest recovery. Uh, you know, everyone or not everyone, but a lot of times when people think like, how am I going to get better? They think of the act of doing the workout or, you know, you go into the weight room and you're, you're lifting the heavy weights. That's how you're going to get stronger. Or you want to run faster, you go out and you run faster and that's how you're going to, you're going to develop. And that's true to a degree, but if you don't give yourself the chance to rest and recover from those workouts, you're not going to realize those gains. So it, when I think of rest as a big mover, I think of it as like, it doesn't matter how hard I work in training. If I don't respect the rest and recovery side of the equation, all that hard work is just going to get, go to waste. I'm not going to make the improvements. So that's, that's kind of that third piece of puzzle, making sure I'm staying on top of things like sleep, uh, recovery, making sure I'm noticing weaknesses when they develop from like mobility or, you know, if something's off in my mechanic or my gate due to like a slight type of injury type thing that's flaring up, paying attention to that sort of stuff is, is key as well. Yeah. We've had uh, several different fitness experts on here and, or athletes. And the one common thing that keeps coming up is sleep, the importance mm -hmm. of sleep. And uh, yeah. there's a book out there, why we sleep. I've read it a couple of times actually. And it, it really makes you change your mindset as to how much you're getting and how much you need. And uh, you were, you're mentioning, uh, your diet. What does your diet consist of? And also what does it consist of? Like just for a casual listener out there, they plan on going for, you know, a run the next day. What would you usually intake into your body? Yeah, it's a good question. I think I follow, I kind of go a little bit in contrast of what you probably see a lot of endurance athletes doing. I think the community as a whole, especially at the more traditional distances are very kind of like carb based. 
Um, and there's a reason for that, especially yeah. I think when you get to like the marathon and things where you get this event that is just very oxygen expensive. So like you look at just the way that your body uses oxygen to metabolize a carbohydrate versus a fat. And if you are going to be up to that ceiling or that threshold of oxygen consumption, you want to make sure you're accounting for efficiency with that. Now you get into races that I'm doing like a hundred miles and that most ultra marathoners are like building up to a lot of times folks are, you know, doing these races and taking 20 hours, 24 hours, sometimes further to finish them. Now we've reduced the intensity so low relative to what we can do. That piece of the puzzle isn't nearly as important. I'm never going to find myself pushing up to a point where I would in a marathon and require that level of efficiency from, from the oxygen delivery side of things. So that point, it becomes a, a, a multi-tiered question, but one of them is digestion. Like how do I tolerate um, consuming energy during this event without overriding that system to the point where it costs me more than it gains me, where I'm, you know, losing my nutrition through stomach issues, digestive issues, and that sort of stuff. So for me, I actually focus on more of a higher fat diet for that very reason. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, it's a fuel source I'm going to use in higher ratios during my event. And it's one where I can manipulate with diet. It can also train like you can, you don't have to follow a low carbohydrate diet in order to improve your fat oxidation rates. There are ways you can do that. Um, but you can definitely move the needle more aggressively by giving your body the fuel source. You're trying to get it to burn. Um, so partly due to the uniqueness of the events I'm doing, you know, I, I kind of, I, I don't, I don't go what you consider like ketogenic low during my, my peak training phases, but I am pretty low compared to what you'd see, especially like at Olympic distance, uh, you know, endurance athletes where they're eating probably some in the neighborhood of like 60 to sometimes 80% carbohydrate. Whereas when I'm at my highest, I'm at maybe 20, 30% from carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've done a lot of different variations of it. Like the macronutrient ratios have stayed pretty consistent the last uh, nearly 10 years since I kind of first took on that, that way of eating. And the thing that I've kind of played around with or changed the most in that time frame is like, well, what, what foods do I make up those ratios with? So like anything from, I've done it where I've had very little animal products or meat products uh, in the diet to where I've had almost exclusively that. And then everything in between, just to try to tease out well, what foods do well for me personally as an individual, which ones do I feel like are uh, gonna kind of get me where I wanna be from a recovery and a performance standpoint. And, and, uh, and, and, and you know, that's I, the way I, the way I kind of look at that in the current is like, there are things that certain plant foods are better at doing and have advantages with. So as long as I acknowledge where their benefits and their, their negatives are, and then find where that fits in the kind of the puzzle of my nutrition plan, same thing with the animal products, there's things that those do much better at. Um, so finding like, well, where, what do I want them to, or where do I want to lean on their strengths, I guess is the way to look at it. Uh, versus an alternative source. And uh, in terms of foods that I tend that tend to find their way into my nutrition quite regularly, I do quite a bit of like eggs, um, like yogurts I'll do, especially when I'm in high training stuff, a lot of like oils, like extra virgin olive oil type stuff, coconut oil, um, seeds, nuts, uh, animal fats, uh, you know, butter, if I'm needing extra calories and I'm not having a fatty, fatty enough cuts of meat and things like that. Yeah. Uh, those things will oftentimes find their way into my diet. And then, uh, 
all the carbohydrates I, I consume are, are typically like starches or fruits for the most part. So like potatoes, you know, apples, melons, berries, that sort of stuff. I'll do some honey from time to time. And then, you know, intro workout stuff. I'll use, I use a lot of the products from a company called S fuels. Uh, so that stuff is, especially when I'm in peak training, I'll be using their recovery products as well as their, their intro workout stuff. That's what I was going to ask you is uh, post recovery. What do you usually put into your body, whether it be supplements, uh, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm really, I would should say like the last maybe three years, I've been much more, uh, much more interested in like kind of the role of protein with endurance athletes. I think this mm-hmm. is something that historically has gotten kind of a, a mislabel. I, I would kind of compare it to the way that endurance athletes have kind of looked at strength work historically, where you, you're kind of in this weird spot, especially as you're looking, if you're looking at performance as the big driver, there is a bit of a balance between kind of like your power weight ratio for athletes or for endurance athletes. So you want to be light, but you don't want to be light at the expense of your power output to the degree where you're starting to actually slow down. Because even with a reduction in weight, you're losing enough power where you're actually going slower than you would have been at at a heavier weight. So kind of finding that spot, I think is key for endurance athletes. And it's going to be a very individual spot for each person. And, but to get there, I think a lot of times endurance has to looked at half of that equation and, and thought like, well, you know, protein is going to make me bulky. It's going to make me muscular. Same like the weight room. I'm, if I go in the weight room, I'm going to get these big, huge muscles. Just even touch I'm, it. I'm going to get, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, you can see the strength athletes who sit there for 10 years trying to add like, you know, a couple <laughs> more pounds to their, to their deadlift or something like that. And it's like, they're, they're laughing at that. Like I had this skinny little 140 pound endurance. I was going to come in here and blow up <laughs> overnight. Yeah. So, so it's, uh, it's funny like that, but uh, yeah. So there's like a lot of, I think still like avoidance of strength work and protein and things like that with endurance athletes. Uh, I think it's gotten a lot better though, too. And that's something I've been, been looking at in a little more uh, detail the last few years. Um, I'm trying to think of where I was going. Oh, you see, you're asking about post recovery. So yeah, like after like a big session, usually what I ask myself is what is coming next? So with, with training, sometimes it's like, I just did a hard session. Now I have a few days off or like a a few days of very easy work where I, I don't really need to think about performance as my, my primary target. The next couple of days recovery is my primary target. So for those, I'm going to very much be thinking about like, make sure I get enough protein, make sure I'm doing the right things from sleep standpoint and a, you know, stretch and mobility standpoint to get myself ready for that next session, you know, versus, you know, sometimes of the year I'll be blocking my workouts where I'll do a hard session one day and then the next day do another hard session. And essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to take the same training load as you would do if you did like a hard session, a couple easy sessions, and then another hard session. And you're condensing that training load into a shorter time frame, which based on the current research is you can stay injury free and actually execute those workouts at the level you did with the easy runs in between then you do stand to get, I think it right now it's around a two to 4% increase in, in, uh, in performance from going that route versus another. So like if I'm blocking workouts like that, I might be looking at it a little bit differently. I'm still going to have to make sure I'm getting protein in and things like that. It might just be like, what other foods am I eating with it? Uh, in that context, you do like omega threes or COQ 10 or any of that stuff. Um, you know, most of my omega threes I'll usually get from just salmon. I eat enough fish and it's natural. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I think like, yeah, 
if you get my, my wife loves salmon, she'll eat it probably five nights a week. So that's me. It, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I find that like, since, since we've lived together, I've been eating a lot more of that. So I haven't done as much omega-3 supplementation due to that. But if I am like traveling or for whatever reason, I'm like, Oh, it's been like a while since I've been, you know, eating, eating seafood, I will have some like an omega-3 supplement or something like that. It's, it's almost like a protein bar for, for an athlete traveling, right. just have it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so next thing I want to talk about is uh, you have some distinct world records here that we're going to go over. Uh, you claimed two records at the six days in the dome in Milwaukee. It was August 24, 2019. Your 100 mile time of 11 hours, 19 minutes, 13 seconds. Uh, I, I swear you're like the living version of Forrest Gump with your, with your, with you probably never heard that either, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And then you, that was an American mark of 11 hours, 40 minutes, 55 seconds. And then after claiming, um, or it was faster than, excuse me, I take that back. It, the world record was almost 11 minutes, um, faster than the one that was previously held from 2002. And then after claiming the 100 mile record, you continued running for another 40 minutes and upped your own 12 hour distance world record to 104.8 miles and improved more than three miles over the previous mark. What in the world goes into a 100 mile run? <laughs> yeah, the, you know, one of, uh, one of the guys in the sport who's done a lot of like film and documentation of events and things like that, he did a documentary years ago called uh, Life in a Day. And it's perfect because it, it literally is. It's like, you know, you have like these like really exciting high points and then you have like these low points where you're really questioning what's what you're doing, if you're heading in the right direction, if things are, you ask yourself, why am I doing this? You know, and, and so you think back on just like the entirety of an event like that and you just have so many points of variance that it does feel like uh, almost like a full life cycle to a degree. So for that particular race itself, um, you know, one of the more interesting things I think about it was when I hit around mile 40 there, I was very much questioning whether I had it in me that day. You know, I had been targeting the world record for hundred miles for almost six years at that point. And in 2013, I done my first kind of flat, fast hundred miler and uh, had broke the American record for hundred miles and the world record for 12 hours at that race. So after that, I was like, okay, let's see if I can get the world record for hundred miles. And, you know, I had gone through various attempts that weren't, weren't quite fast enough to get me there. And so at mile 40, I was feeling like I was maybe in that same boat and questioning whether I should keep pushing or if I should just kind of get comfortable and just put up a, a decent time, but settle for something less than the world record. And you know, I, I, that was kind of a bit of a fork in the road on the day where I had kind of two directions to go. And, you know, one of them was to, to scale back and the other was to say, stay on pace or get back on pace for a few more miles and just see what happens. And thankfully I, I picked the second and, you know, after a couple of miles hitting the splits, I felt, felt good again and felt kind of positive. And I just started uh, getting back to what I learned works best for these longer races, where if you're thinking about getting to hundred miles, when you're in the early stages, it's eventually just going to consume you mentally. It's just going to wear your mental bandwidth down to the point where you get to the point of the race where you really have to be focused and really concentrate on staying on pace. You're going to fall off. Yeah. So I got back to like, okay, I'm at 40 ish miles. What do I want to be at at 50? 
let's get there and then we'll worry about the rest next. And then we'll Little get to markers. 50. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. you start to really chunk it, take it, make it, make it something you can wrap your head around based on what you did in training. And then, you know, eventually I got myself to 70 miles and that 70 miles, the question I asked myself was, well, I've done like six or seven 30 mile long runs in training to prepare for this. So I really just have one of those left. And then my mind kind of shifted from I'm here to run hundred miles at world record pace to, I just have to do one more long run. I just have to do one more of these. I've done these in close proximity to this race. I know what that feels like. I know what it takes. And, uh, when I kind of just did a self-assessment, how I felt physically, I was like, I can do this. This is, uh, you know, my, the wheels aren't coming off. I don't feel like there's anything that's really, really that, uh, that, that daunting, that's going to keep me from being able to hit something I've done many times in training. And, and that was a huge confidence boost for me, I think was to get to that point and be able to refocus on that versus, you know, what I would have been doing the days leading in and the early stage of the race, which is trying to wrap your head around, you know, running all day and getting to a hundred miles. And the interesting thing is when you kind of have like a dual target, like I did for that day, where, uh, you know, there's these timed events where the 12 hours, one of them, where you just see how far you can get in a specific set of time, you do kind of have a little bit of opportunity to double dip. But if you find yourself trying to focus on the second piece to that equation or that puzzle, I think you kind of lose focus on like the immediate task at hand, which you can't necessarily do either. So I had to make sure I was not thinking about, you know, whatever time was left on the clock when I hit a hundred miles until I got to that point. So hitting that hundred miles, there was just so much, I think kind of relief and adrenaline and excitement from finally like hitting that goal that I'd set almost six years earlier that, you know, even though I slowed down for that last 40 minutes, I was able to kind of stay positive and stay out there and keep moving and, and uh, you know, best my previous mark for 12 hours by uh, about three miles. So um, yeah, it was an exciting day and an interesting, <laughs> an interesting, uh, uh, way to go about it, I guess. Very, very, very impressive. Uh, you, you ran more that day than I've driven in my car since <laughs> last March. So it's very, very impressive. Uh, what, what about stretching? Do you stretch before, after, cause you hear all kinds of different theories. Everybody's an expert on stretching. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think like when you look at like static stretching, that's where it gets a little, a little goofy because, you know, as a, the way I describe endurance sounds, you kind of want to think of like a rubber band yeah. where you want to be able to move fluidly through the proper range of motion of your running gait, your running cycle, but you don't want to be so loose and like, like unstatic that like you don't have any of that pop or that power. Uh, so there is, I think a little bit like you want to be tight enough within the range of proper range of motion that you get that, like that new rubber band sensation Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think you necessarily want to be like a, you know, a professional yoga expert to, <laughs> in, in, in a lot of cases. In fact, like, I think a lot of it has to do with the implementation of this. I'm not saying don't do yoga if you're a runner by any stretch of the imagination, but like if I would go and do a bunch of static stretching before like a short interval workout, the research actually shows that that could potentially compromise my performance for that workout. And I could potentially hurt myself because if I get too loose, and I start overstriding and overreaching in those really kind of harder, faster efforts. You know, I could pull something because I'm doing that over and over again in a different range of motion than what my body was typically going to gravitate towards naturally. 
So I like a lot of dynamic stretches and mobility movements when I'm looking in close proximity to a workout that I'm about to do, or if I feel a little stiff or tight, um, I will do static stretching, but I'll usually do that separate, like later on in the day, uh, especially if I'm kind of tight and sore from the workout and things like that. Um, so, you know, a lot of, a lot of dynamic work, like leg swings, um, knee raises, uh, you know, active stuff like forward lunges. If I'm going to do like a calf slash, like kind of like the Achilles foot area stretching, I'll do like, I'll get on like a plank or a wedge and stretch it, but I'll also go through a range of motion with that and, and kind of like work that foot in a multiple angle. So that's used to like varied terrain and things like that, especially if I'm getting ready for a trail event where there's going to be a lot more like mm -hmm. uh, variance on the surface that you're running on and things like that smart okay yeah it's, it's really good advice another thing that happened was you know march 11th covid kicked off and threw a wrench in a lot of people's plans my personal opinion what i think is more impressive than your six days in the dome was your 100 mile <laughs> treadmill run that you did so i was going to ask you two-part question first how did covid impact you and then also how in the world do you stay focused on a treadmill for a hundred for 12, it was 12 hours, right? 12 hours on there, average pace, seven minutes and 18 seconds per mile. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was a really interesting experience for sure. It was essentially like you kind of alluded to it a little bit. I had a, a flat hundred miler on the calendar for April in London. And as soon oh. as March, March rolled around that stuff all, yeah, as everything did kind of fell off and, they, those things got canceled or postponed, rescheduled and everything in between. And uh, so at that point, I was actually pretty far into a training program for it. I, I was just starting to kind of peak where I was starting to do a lot of race specific things, which meant like going to the track, run 30 miles at goal race pace type of stuff. So I had done a lot of the work to prepare for that event. So I wasn't quite as kind of eager as to just say, okay, well, we'll put everything on pause and step back and wait for things to clear up and then pick an event. I thought, let's see what my opportunities are here. And I'd been actually, I had a couple of buddies who had done some treadmill record chasing stuff. Uh, one of my friends, Jacob Puzzi had the 50 mile world best. He, he averaged sub six minute pace for 50 miles on a treadmill at a trade show. Wow. Uh, I want to say that was like in 2015, maybe. So I was aware of that. And the guy who had the record for that before Dave Proctor uh, was a guy I was aware of and had followed some of his running achievements. And, and so I was, I just, I knew what, what, uh, about these things. I had always thought of that as something that would be kind of like up my alley in terms of an, a type of a target or event to kind of do, but it's tough to find a spot to do those type of things when there's actual races on the calendar. <laughs> Cause when you think about just like getting on a treadmill for 12 hours or hundred miles, and then your, your, your other opportunities to actually go to an event. Uh, at least for me, I've usually defaulted to the event, but when there were no events, then it's like, I kind of saw it as, okay, here's the opportunity to do this. So um, I was, I was fortunate that I, I knew some folks at NordaTrack and uh, I reached out to them and said, Hey, I'm thinking of doing this event that we're going to live stream and bring in guest speakers and things like that um, to come in and talk about some of their ultra running efforts and achievements, as well as, some folks just to talk about the sport in general and and kind of turn it into a bit of an, uh, an event or a, a spectator friendly thing where they don't have to just sit there and stare at me staring at a treadmill screen all day but there's entertainment kind of mixed in and sprinkled in with it so 
uh, they were on board with it. Uh, and we just started kind of planning and my sponsors were eager to help out and assist. So we set up a couple treadmills that actually in this room that you see here and, yeah. and, uh, and go for that. So it was very interesting in terms of like the relative comparison, you know, I'm no stranger to monotonous racing courses. I've done hundred milers and 12 hour stuff on 400 meter tracks. So like people think of that, that's about as a boring of an environment as you can get on, but the treadmill was just different in a couple couple ways and the big one that stuck out to me was when I'm running on a track even though that's the same mechanic over and over and over again I'm able to kind of subconsciously alter my pace even if it's just micro adjustments I might be running the exact same split like I might hit a minute and 40 seconds for like 30 laps in a row but even within that, like I might be running like a little bit faster at times and then slowing down a little bit. And it's all adding up to that minute 40 lap split. Whereas when you're on a treadmill, you pick a pace and you set it and then you kind of respond to that. So you're, you're forcing your body to take on that exact same mechanic and exact same pace without any fluctuations. And for whatever reason, that kind of like steals your sense of control which for yeah. me was really tough psychologically because I felt like I had lost when you feel like you've lost control. It makes it a lot harder. I think stay focused and stay like um, positive about stuff. So I found that like I was just shifting pace a lot. Like I would, if I wanted to run say eight and a half miles per hour, I would run eight miles per hour for a little bit. Then I switched to nine miles per hour and then I'd go 8.2, then 8.8 and just kind of always be changing it. So I felt like I was like a little bit in control and I also wasted a lot more time just like, getting off the treadmill from time to time. I, in fact, at, I think it was mile 87 at one point, I was just like, I just felt like I got to step off this thing. Even if it's just for like a couple of minutes, I stepped off, I sat down for like two minutes. I ate some potato chips, hopped back on. And then I felt great. It was like, I went from like, just like, I can't, I can't take another, another 30 seconds to, okay, now we got half marathon to go. Let's get this done. So it, the really weird thing was like the mental resets could be very quick. It's like yeah. almost just the act of, even if I just step off for a couple seconds and step back on, that was enough for me to remind myself, oh yeah, I am in control here. So uh, uh, that's something that I found really interesting. And it's really the part of it that makes me want to like consider doing it again at some point. Cause yeah. now that I know that I feel like I could probably approach it a little more efficiently and spend a less, a little less non-moving time than I did on that day. It's kind of like when you're driving, you're taking a road trip and you stop off and you walk in the gas station for yeah. just a couple of minutes and then you're fine. You're like, that's all I needed was just to mm -hmm. stop real quick. And yeah, get some no, that's a great chips. comparison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's exactly yeah. the same thing. Get some potato chips and a mega gulp and back. Yeah, and then, and, then, and then you're like, I'm good to go. I got your music on and you're ready. Um, yeah. So you mentioned sponsorships and that's, you know, uh, before we get into some of the other things you're doing uh, to wrap this up, talk about the importance of, having those sponsors. Yeah. I mean, it's huge in the sport of ultra running because it's not like other sports in the sense that, you know, when you think of like pro football players, basketball players, baseball players, hockey players, some of the kind of the big, like uh, popular sports in the United States, you know, they join a team, they get a contract from that team. And that's, that's where they make, uh, they have sponsors as well, but like, you know, there are a lot of times they're, that's where their big, their income stream is coming from. Whereas ultra runners, uh, you know, there's not a lot of prize money in the sport. There are some that offer decent prize money, but most people aren't going to make a living off of winning prize money. So you end up partnering up with brands that, you know, make the products that you like to use. And 
fortunately, when you're running hundred miles, especially if it's out in like a remote place, there's a lot of resources you need in order to do that right. Or do that at the fastest way possible. So there is a lot of different companies that service that community with their products and stuff. So you find the ones you like, and then, you know, if you can find a mutually agreeable partnership where, you know, they're helping you financially and you're helping them with marketing, essentially, that's kind of how you make a career of it. So for me, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, has helped me step away from teaching and able to focus primarily on training and racing. Uh, but has also kind of opened up opportunities for me to kind of think of like, well, what can I do alongside this so that I have a career after I'm no longer competitive racing wise. So like developing a coaching business, um, you know, working on marketing initiatives with my sponsors so that they can see like, well, where's, wh- wh- where can I have value for them? You know, perhaps as an employee or, you know, down the road as an employee and have like connections and things like mm-hmm. that too. So, you know, sort of building, building a, a foundation of a, a brand more or less so that you have something to, to lean on when, you know, the racing isn't happening like during COVID or when you get to a point where now I'm my fastest races are behind me and that sort of stuff. So they help you kind of like get through that phase where you still have the time and the flexibility to train hard and race hard and feel like you're not getting compromised by having to work a full-time job in a traditional sense, but uh, also kind of focus your energies around the running, the running community. Do you ever think you'll go back into teaching? Yeah. You know, it's, that's a good question. Cause I think like when I stepped away, it was like the unfortunate side of that was uh, I had found the place that I really think I thrived at as a teacher. And I had been there for two years. So it was hard to kind of say, all right, I went through all the education to get myself in a position to be able to be a teacher. You know, I, I taught at a couple different places and ultimately found a great fit for me personally. And now here, I'm just going to say, well, you know, let's go a different direction now. So I wouldn't rule it out altogether. Um, my, my, uh, the thing that eventually kind of convinced me to, to take the route I did was just like the time sensitivity of being a professional athlete. It's, you know, you have a tight window for that. Whereas I could essentially teach well into you know, my older years if I want to. So I'm, 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 I guess I'm a bit on the fence on it at the moment where I'll see where I'm at at the end of everything. And if it's, if it's something where I'm want to get back in the classroom, excited to, and that, that is going to be like fulfilling then, then I certainly would. Um, but I, I, I have at least a few years left before I have to make that decision. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then you also do podcasting, Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you don't mind, uh, let our listeners know what it is and where they can find it. Yeah. Yeah. That's another aspect I should have probably mentioned is like, yeah, you just, uh, you build this kind of community of, uh, people and resources around, around you and things you're interested in. And you find other people are interested in those things too. And like podcasting has been one thing that I've really enjoyed. Like I want to, when I first started racing semi-competitively and ultra running, one of my favorite venues to go and talk about that was on podcasts. I, I kind of enjoyed that a lot better than like the social media channels for the most part. So doing being a guest on a lot of podcasts really kind of opened my eyes to that world a bit. And eventually I got to a point where I said, well, let's check this out from the opposite side, the host side. And, and I was really fortunate to have a co-host for the first couple of years, Dr. Sean Baker. And um, he's, he's had a lot of uh, opportunities himself in the last couple of years. So he's since stepped away to focus on that stuff, but it was great to have him as a, as a side, as a, as a partner um, to kind of get used to that. Cause it's like, 
I mean, as you probably know, like it is different to be on the other side of the microphone, kind of thinking of the questions and guiding the conversation in a way that your listeners are going to enjoy it. And, you know, everything that goes into that. And then if you edit your own podcast, that's a whole nother kind of piece to that puzzle. It's a beast. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of times, I mean, for me anyway, like I was learning that on the fly too. So mm-hmm. it's a, you know, we certainly had our hurdles from like, well, how do we improve our audio quality? How do we make sure that my computer isn't making a buzzing noise in the background or your computer's not making a buzzing and that sort of stuff. So like that has been a kind of a really fun project the last few years to really try to work on improving that and getting getting all that stuff figured out. So yeah, Human Performance Outliers is, I think we just released our 239th episode today. So yeah. uh, been cranking them out. Uh, it's been fun and exciting and gone in a few different directions in terms of like topics and things. But uh, the way I have it set up is like, if I'm interested in something, I'm not too concerned if it's completely irrelevant to running, completely irrelevant to the stuff that I'm typically interested in. Uh, it's really opened up a lot of opportunities to talk to experts that, uh, mm-hmm. that I probably otherwise would have never even thought of reaching out to. So, I mean, we talked about protein earlier. That's when I got kind of turned on to the value that I've been fortunate to have some of the leading protein researchers in, in the world come on from like, uh, professor Stu Phillips, uh, professor Don Lehman, uh, professor Jose Antonio, like Keith, but professor Keith Barr, like some of these, these guys who've done a lot of the most recent stuff in that field have been come on and shared their expertise. So it's really kind of a cool, a cool way to learn, um, both as a host and as a listener. Uh, so, so that's been a real fulfilling, fulfilling, uh, endeavor for me. It really is, especially like for us, like we keep ours very diverse with the different uh, backgrounds that people come from, and especially when you get one that you have no idea anything about their field or anything and you have to do your research, you really do get more knowledgeable on it. And then Mm -hmm. finally, uh, the Zach Better Endurance uh, site, educate our listeners as to what they can find on there. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's what my website, just at zachbitter.com. It's kind of the hub where I connect all the stuff I'm up to on, on it, on it. So like social media channels, coaching services, podcast links and notes and things like that. I kind of all direct through there. So uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, the, the easy spot to find out what I'm up to or link over to some of that other stuff. And final question for you. I usually ask people, you know, about their, their legacy. You definitely have a legacy. I think that goes without saying, but what do you, what's the next big challenge for you? Yeah. You know, the interesting thing I think about ultra running is you get, I think what draws a lot of people into it is especially in the early stages, you know, most people aren't jumping right into a hundred mile race. They're going to do like maybe 50 Ks, 50 milers, hundred Ks, and then they're going to get to this hundred miles. So there's like these years kind of early on where everything's new and exciting, where like you get to a starting line, you're like, if things go okay today, I'm going to run further than I ever have before. And that's just like a really cool kind of spot to be in. So once you've done it for a while though, you end up repeating and it's, it's less about doing something for the first time. It's more about like developing within that Mm. and you start to lose a little bit of that. So one thing I'm going to be doing this year, actually in September is something that's very foreign to what I've done in the past. And it's a, it's called a trans America or transcontinental run where you go by foot from, so you, you said Forrest Gump before, this is legit real Forrest Gump stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Running from San Francisco to New York, uh, essentially having with an RV trailing. And uh, I'm gonna, the, the reason that I wanna do it is is actually 
less about chasing the record, although I do think I have a shot at that. Um, but uh, raising awareness and donations for a charity called Fight for the Forgotten, whose oh, founder, awesome. uh, yeah, their founder, Justin Wren, is just, I think, one of the most uh, interesting and compassionate people I've ever met. I, he, he was just like a very harshly bullied at his youth. And he really like uh, worked hard to build himself up in his confidence to the point where he was kind of world-class uh, mixed martial artist, uh, Greco-Roman wrestler, uh, and ultimately decided, hey, I want to find the most forgotten group of people on planet Earth and, and see what I can do for them. And he identified the Pygmy tribe in the Congo as that group. And uh, he has done everything from get them basic human rights to build wells. They're building farms and houses there now. Uh, and he's also adding kind of a branch to that uh, to that charity or those humanitarian efforts where they're going to develop a curriculum for school districts to help like uh, help people like navigate and and uh, work through like bullying situations in in schools in the United States and things like that. So. Uh, it's been great to get to know him and I'm, I'm super honored that he, he wants to partner with me on this and hopefully we can ra raise a lot of awareness for, for that charity and help him keep doing what he does, does best. Uh, so yeah, that'll be uh, in September and it's such a deviant or such a, a, a divergence from what I've normally done. Like what I do in ultra marathoning to date is a lot of single day things where you destroy yourself physically for a day and then, you know, for a week or two weeks or maybe more after you don't do hardly anything. Whereas with this, it's like, I got to get up, run slash walk 12, 14 hours and then, but do it in a way where I can get up and do it again the next day and do that for six, seven, eight weeks. So that'll be interesting. I've still got a lot to learn and a lot of logistics to plan out for that, but uh, is I'm excited to kind of get back to what I was saying before there, where this is something that's very new to me, very foreign to what I've done in the past. And I'm going to be doing a lot of things I've never done before throughout the course of that, that uh, project. Yeah. We'll definitely keep uh, listeners posted on that, especially as it gets closer to it as well and keep up with it on Instagram. Sir, do you have any uh, final comments for our listeners? Uh, just thanks for having me on. It's, you know, it's always fun to, to chat with folks and, you know, come on the, come on podcast and share my story and hear, hear from folks like yourself. So uh, thanks for the opportunity to, uh, to come on. Absolutely. Well, folks, that is going to wrap up this episode of the Shadows Podcast.